Also remember next Sunday is the, uh, the Christmas gifts from the Christmas trees, the 12 trees. If you took an ornament, be sure you bring your gift next Sunday. We'll be praying over those and over the ministries that they represent. We've got some of our people that we should agree in prayer for today. I know probably half of you sitting out there are also in pain and don't feel 100%, so we also should just pray for everybody probably. But I'll just name a few of them out to you. John Kemp had his hernia surgically fixed, but as a result, he now has pneumonia. So he's got breathing issues, and he's on real high levels of oxygen, and Jane's asking prayer for him. And just for them, wisdom as they walk through this and creativity, how do they get everything done when they're both housebound to take care of him? She takes care of him. Jerry Snyder, thank you for praying for him. He's still very weak. And there are other few physical things going on. He's experiencing, they're going to see the doctor this week and see if the leukemia has changed at all or what's going on. So that's why they're not here today. Rosie Stovall still in a whole lot of pain. She's going to see a surgeon right about possibility of back surgery. So we want to keep praying for her. The Wilson family, if you read the email, they have flown to Montana because of Lee's um, uncle who passed away. Ellie Kate's nephew who was in a motorcycle accident. Any update on him? It's very critical. Okay. Critical situation. What's his name? Steve. Okay, so if y'all can be praying for Steve. And then Eva, as you know, was in a car accident. She's still banged up, bruised up, and so she's at home. And Carla is still recovering from her accident. And so we've got, we've just got a lot of people we need to cover in prayer. So will you agree with me in prayer? And let's, let's lift up our family members here. <clears throat> Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus, the name which is above every other name. And Lord, we know we can come because of virtue of your blood, Jesus, that we can approach the throne of grace. We can come before the throne of the Father. And we do that today, Lord, as a family. We lift you, our family members, those who are grieving, the Veracruz family, the Williams family the Wilson family, those who are recovering from sickness or accident or injury of any kind. Lord, all these different people I've just named, those I haven't named, those even in this room that are in exceptional pain today. Lord, I pray your word over them that says in Matthew 8, 17, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Jesus, today, would you take our infirmities again? Would you bear those sicknesses? Would you bear the pain? Would you lift it off of your people? I pray healing for all of your people, Lord, in this class, related to people in this class. Would you release that? I pray for an increased anointing for healing at Highland, that for every age, for every ailment, Lord, we will see gifts of healing be released in this congregation where we can pray with faith and see the hand of God move. And we pray this morning with faith, and we pray we will see the hand of God move in rapid healing for all these people that we love and care about. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're blessed to have Mark Weibel with us today. He is our senior associate pastor and everything else he does around here. Good morning. 
It is so good to be with you this morning. We are, hopefully, uh, you got the word that we are uh, studying Psalm 31. Psalm 31. So if you would, look in your Bibles to Psalm 31. I want to start out in uh, 1875, a man named William Ernest Henley wrote a poem called Invictus. And I want to contrast this poem with Psalm 31. William Henley writes this, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody yet unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I don't know about you, but uh, I read that in high school, and that was really touted as the way we were supposed to approach life. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Yes. I want you to contrast that with Psalm 31. Let's take a look at Psalm 31 as you continue in the study of the Psalms. David is being chased. He's living in caves. He's been forsaken by family and friends. And 33 times... 33 times in these 24 verses, David confesses that his dependence or his help is found in you, Lord. The antithesis of I am the captain of my soul, I am the master of my fate, is David in Psalm 31 going, it's in you that I find my refuge. It's in you that I find my help. This, this psalm runs so counter to what we are taught, especially here in America. We like to be the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul. The problem is this. Most often, we are in horrible situations because we are the captains of our destiny. We are the masters of our soul. We get ourselves in a world of hurt. Our actions and our attitudes, our living situations, our decisions are the thing that creates in us the need to find refuge in something. And so here here we have this contrast of this poem written in 1875 and to the words of the psalmist written thousands of years ago. So with that as a background, understanding That when we take control of ourselves and our situations, and again, I'm not saying we abrogate our responsibilities to act responsibly. But when we depend upon ourselves and we become the center, there's problems that ensue. And so we're going to look in Psalm chapter 31. So in 31, Psalm 31, verse 1, uh, David writes... In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. That word refuge literally means I flee for protection. Now, I just pose a question. I'm going to want a little bit of interaction here, okay? Early on, I want some interaction. So don't be shy. Be ready to sound, say out whatever it is that you want to say. What does someone, why does someone need to take refuge? Why does somebody need to take refuge? Come on. Protection, danger, trouble, fear. Somebody in the back said something. 
under attack. Yeah, they're hurting. Uh, they're under attack. Maybe they're visionless. Maybe they're directionless. Uh, overwhelmed. Anybody ever get overwhelmed? You get overwhelmed with life situations. Why do people need to take refuge? Because life happens. Okay? Life just happens. So when people in the world, notice this is, um, the, the question is people in the world, not people in the faith in Christ, but people in the world, when they face these things, many times where do people in the world take refuge? Come on. Come on. Material things, possessions, addictions, alcohol, drugs, booze, wrong relationships, therapy, counselors. And again, I'm not against therapy and counselors. But I'm saying that when we simply say, I'm, I'm going to find an escape through television, I'm going to find escape through entertainment, I'm going to find escape through uh, alternate relationships, I'm going to find an escape through drinking or drugs or all these different things, materialistic pleasures. If I can just buy more, get more, then it will satisfy my soul. People face things and they turn and take refuge in things that will never satisfy why is it important to take refuge in the Lord? Why? Come on. You'll be on the right path. It's according to his will. Does God ever change? Does God ever let you down? God may not grant what you want, but God is always with you wherever you go. You, you see, I think it's important to notice in verse 1, he says, in you do I take refuge. Notice that it's a person David flees to, not a place or a thing or a substance. God, why? Why, why God? Because God alone cares for you. Because everybody else is caring for themselves first, right? I'm going to care for myself first. They don't care for you. God alone knows the outcome of your situation. God alone knows this. And God alone is the one who has promised to say, I can work all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So, so why run to God? In chapter, uh, John chapter 10, verse 29, you don't need to go there, but in John 10, 29, it says, I, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and, get this, no one will snatch them out of my hand. When you flee to the Lord... You are in his hand, and no one will snatch you out of his hand. Why run to the Lord for refuge? Why not run to things or materialistic things or alternate things, drugs, alcohol? Why not do that? Because those things people can snatch away. Those things will never fulfill. But God has said, I give them eternal life. They will not perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Continuing in verse 1 of Psalm 31 David writes and says, let me never be put to shame in your righteousness, deliver me. Notice he doesn't say in my righteousness because of my good deeds, because of who I am. But he says, in your righteousness, deliver me. That word deliver me literally means bring me into security. In your righteousness, bring me into security. It is God's righteousness that David appeals to, not to his own. So question, why is it important to depend on his righteousness and not your righteousness. Romans, if you, you, good job. You read my notes right there. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. No, not one. <laughs> Nobody. 
oh yeah, I think I am. You know, I, I, about him, he ain't right. To, she ain't right. To me, yeah, I think I'm there. No, 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 no. The writer says, there's none righteous. And just in case you think you are, no, not one. Nobody is righteous. You see, when we run to him for his righteousness, now here's the deal. He imputes his righteousness to us at salvation, but it's his righteousness. It's not ours. So when we hide ourselves in him, he is faithful to protect and provide. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says this, if we are faithless. And I think you could also change that word if to when. When we are faithless. When we are faithless. If we are faithless, he himself remains faithful. Why run to the, why run to the Lord when you're in trouble? Because nobody's going to snatch you out of his hands. And he is faithful. Verse 2, incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Now, here's the deal. Verse 2 of Psalm 31 indicates a willingness to call out for help. They have to ask for help. This is David, the Goliath slayer. This is David, the, you know, I've killed a bear and I've killed a lion with my bare hands. This is David. And he is saying, I need help. I need help. You, you see, we are taught, don't ask for help. Pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. Do this yourself because you are the master of your fate. You are the controller of your destiny. You do this. And David, in strong David, young David, young vibrant David is the one who is saying, I'm calling out for help. So here's the deal. In your situation, sometimes we don't get the help that is available to us for one reason. We don't ask for it. Why do we have to ask for it? Because it's an act of humility. It's an act of humbling ourselves under the hand of the Lord and going, Lord, this burden is too big for me. This situation, this wayward son, this wayward daughter, this health situation, this ABC, XYZ, this whatever, it's too much for me. And I humble myself and I run to you for refuge. What keeps us from asking for help? Generally, it's our pride. Generally, it's just our, yeah, I got this. Sometimes, sometimes, we can go, well, God, I know you're busy with the big things, you know, the political things and the, uh, the troubles in the world. I won't bother you with my thing. Let me tell you something. You need to bother the Lord with your thing no matter what size it is. Why? Because he cares for you. Verse 3, for you are my rock and my fortress and for your name's sake, you lead me and you guide me. Now, again, this is David. The one who, you know, everybody knew David. Everybody, you know, rallying around David. And David is saying, you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake. David was in trouble. David was being pursued. David was being abandoned throughout. We don't know exactly when this was written, but he was abandoned throughout his life. He was attacked by Saul. He was attacked by his son Absalom. He was abandoned by his friends. I mean, he, you know, he had it throughout his life. A lot of it was his own doing. But still, he was oppressed and opposed. And, and so we don't know exactly when this is, but it is him who is saying, Lord, he's not asking for vindication for himself at this point. 
He is simply saying, God, I know you've anointed me. Now for your name's sake, would you deliver me? You see, so many times we get into situations where we want deliverance for our name's sake. I want deliverance from this situation for my name's sake. And you know what? I'm not sure the Lord's quite as interested in your namesake as he is his namesake. He wants his name glorified among the nations. David appeals for protection for the sake of the Lord's name. So I, I want us to use this even as a pattern as we call out to the Lord. We call out to the Lord in our situations and we say, Lord, for your name's sake, would you act on my situation? Would you intervene in my life? So many times we want it to be about us and our reputation. And I will say this, I know that I struggle in this area. This has been revealed to me in the last couple of weeks, which I'll share a little bit of my story here in just a few minutes. And it's been, it's been such a, an amazing journey that the Lord has had me on because we want it to be about us and our reputation. We must appeal to the Lord based on his name and his reputation, not ours. Verse 4, you take me out of the net. Uh, again, how many times is he continually pointing, you, Lord, it's you, it's you. If you don't get anything else, just know this. It's about you, Lord. Okay, You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. You are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O faithful Lord God. Notice, David knows his opponent. He knows them because he's seen them put a net for his feet. He knows what they're out to do, but he doesn't name them. Why? Because he is not worried about his enemy. He's not worried about those that oppose him. He's not worried about tearing down other people. He is simply concentrating on the Lord dealing with him according to the Lord's namesake. Lord David does not ask for revenge. Instead, he continues to commit himself into the hands of the Lord. He sees God as faithful even in the midst of facing imminent danger. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Yes. Anybody remember somebody else that said those words? Jesus said it when? On the cross. The darkest time in all history. From the cross. Jesus says the same thing. Luke 23 verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice. Last thing he says while alive on earth in the flesh. Father into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this he breathed his last. Jesus at the end of his life, he's not asking for vindication. He's not asking for deliverance. He's asking and simply saying, God, I commit myself. Even though I didn't want to go to the cross, I knew I had to go to the cross, but I, did, I asked you if we could not go to the cross, is there another way we could do this thing? But in the end, I commend myself into your hands. What a willingness on part of the Son of God to do that. And if Jesus can do that, what must we do? The safest place to be when in trials is in the hand of the Lord. The safest place that you and I can be in the midst of trials is in the hand of the Lord. I wish I had time to simply say, Let, let's all just testify. Who, has a, you know, who can testify that you, can, you have felt, you had known and understand that there is a, uh, the safest place for me to be is in the hands of the Lord. We're not going to take time to do that, but I would ask you to consider that and consider a time in your life where you have found the safest place to be to be in the hand of the Lord. Uh, Jesus did 
And we must remain committed to entrusting ourselves to the Lord in the face of trials. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 says this. You can write that verse down. Don't look it up. But verse 22, 1 Peter 2, 23 says this. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, when he faced trials... Just as David didn't, he said, I'm watching the people spread the nets, but he doesn't call out to condemn them. He says, Lord, rescue me. And just Jesus too, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He simply did one thing. Lord, I continue to entrust myself into your hand because you judge justly. So hard to do when we're in the flesh and people are opposing us. It's so hard to do. Man, I want to exact revenge. I want God, you know, why don't you just strike them down? Let's go send a bear out and get a Baylor bear. Sick uh, I mean, you know, let's, let's send somebody out and let's strike them dead. You know, or at least maim them a little bit. You know, do something. And Jesus, Jesus and David both just simply continue to entrust themselves to the Lord. It is an active, ongoing process to keep entrusting. And so I would simply pause and say to us, whatever situation in which you find yourself, keep entrusting yourself to the Lord. Lord, I give this to you. Lord, I give this to you. Verse 6, <laughs> David, that, that, a lot of us can probably identify with verse 6. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. But thank the Lord there's not a period there. But I trust in the Lord. <laughs> I hate those. I, 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 I can, I'll put that on a bumper sticker and put that on my refrigerator magnet. I hate those that do. Yeah, I can identify with that. That's not the focus of the verse. The focus of the verse is, but I trust in the Lord. David was a man. He had flesh. He understood the pain of suffering. He understood the, the, the pain of being opposed by family or friends. Or, you know, he understood that. But he never once exacted, wanted to, to exact revenge. He kept entrusting himself. He says, I trust you, Lord. Rather than exacting revenge on enemies, trust the Lord. Verse 7, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have, you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Right there in, in two verses, five references to you. Lord, I rejoice in your love. You have seen my affliction. You know my distress. You have not delivered me over to, the, to my enemy and you have set my feet in a broad place place. Rejoicing and gladness come from the steadfast love and support of the Lord. Rejoicing and gladness come from the steadfast love of the Lord. Doesn't come from your enemies losing. Your enemies getting their just due. That's why everything that's put out in Hollywood is all about revenge. It's all about revenge. You just exact revenge. You go after revenge and it never satisfies. It never satisfies. It cannot satisfy because God is the one who is just and God is the one who repays. Therefore, rejoicing and gladness come from the steadfast love and the support of the Lord. Are you and I willing to rest in that? When people come against us, when situations happen to us, are we willing to rest in the steadfast love of the Lord and the support of the Lord? And then this is, this is such a, a tremendous little uh, nugget right here. 
uh, in verse 7, you have seen my affliction and you know the distress of my soul. God identifies our, our distress. He, he looks and he sees. He doesn't just know about it, but he knows it. He knows the struggle. He knows the hardship. He knows when the lights are out and everything is quiet and it's just you and him. He knows the thoughts that you're having and the struggles that you're having. He knows and he identifies and he has steadfast love for you. And then it says, you have set my feet in a broad place. What a tremendous thing for David to say while he's in the midst of running away. You've set my feet in a broad place. Can we agree that God, when he is in control of us, wherever he places us, it's a broad place. It's a good place. It's a safe place. Genesis 3, how, how, how do we know that we can rejoice? How do we know that he has seen our affliction? Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, God is shown to be El Roy. God who sees, this is where Hagar is referring to God seeing her in the wilderness after Abram and Sarah's rejection. He says, God, you are El Roy. You are the one who sees me. You see me. If you're ever struggling with that and you feel unseen, unheard, unappreciated, just simply say, God, El Roy, you are El Roy. You see me right where I am. So after looking at these first seven verses, there's kind of a transition. Uh, and, and after reviewing his unwavering trust in the Lord, David then addresses his present situation and presents his needs. So he, he builds the first portion of this, uh, of this chapter, this psalm, saying, Lord, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's your name, all this. I trust in you. Now let me deal with what's going on inside me. Verse 9, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. Now you're going to see a little bit of transition to I, 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 I. It was you, 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 you. Now it comes to I, 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 I. I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. My life is spent in sorrow. My years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. All of a sudden, now David is saying, you know what? I started out praising you. I started out confessing my trust and loving you. Now I'm going to appeal to you for your grace in my distress because I understand the long-term consequences of my sinful actions. You see, it was me that sinned. I sinned. And now my, my strength is failing. My body is wasting away. Now I have trouble. Now all these things are happening because of what I did. It wasn't like... Eve in the garden saying, oh, uh, I mean, Adam in the garden saying it was Eve, and Eve saying, oh, it was the serpent. It wasn't, oh, you know, just pass the bug. This is David saying, yeah, I messed up. I messed up. And gang, here's the deal. You want the Lord to be with you in everything that you do, through every trial you walk through, you better start with saying, it was me. I messed up. I did it. I failed. This is where I failed. David understands those long-term consequences of his sinful actions, and he understands the lengthy process of sorrow and grief. And, and, and basically, I think we, what we read in those verses right there is, we never underestimate the severity of my sin. And that is even pointed out in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus speaking says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your eye? You know what? It is so easy for me to find your sin. I can look at you. I can spot sin in you a mile away. I mean, you know, let me just tell you. I can, but you know what? I got a real hard time seeing the sin in my own eye, my own life. 
And Jesus is simply saying in Matthew 7, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's this log in your own? You hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye and then you can see clearly. Take the speck out of your brother's eye. So don't be quick to point fingers at, yeah, but what about him? What about her? Be quick to say, Lord, show me the log in my eye. Verse 11, because of my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have forgotten. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become a broken vessel for I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me and as they plot to take my life. You cannot take refuge in man. Man will fail you. These are the same ones who chanted, Saul has slain his thousand and David his tens of thousands. <coughs> they were the ones who were saying, David is the king. And now he says, everybody's plotting against me. How fickle. How fickle. Just ask, just ask a, a, a college football coach how fickle fans can be. You know, oh, you went eight and four. That's not good enough. Sorry, we're going to try somebody else new. I mean, fickleness of the nature of humans is so fickle. We cannot trust. And I'm not saying that, we, that I'm trying to build mistrust among the body of Christ. We have, to, uh, we have to trust one another. But that's when we are in the Lord. That's why we come to the body of Christ. That's why we do life together in the body of Christ. In the world, people are going to turn against you. So how do we handle it when people have turned, uh, have, who, who, who used to be our friends, have turned against us? He, he says in verse 14. So here, here is the, here's the blend. So verses 1 through 7, we're all about the Lord. Verses 8 through 13, we're all about me. Verse 14, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Rescue, rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. When our trust is in the Lord, we can say our times are in your hands. So um, I want to just share a little bit about what, what has happened to me. Um, three weeks ago, on November the 15th, um, it was 7 o'clock in the morning. I left the house to go do chapel service for Baylor men's basketball team. Been doing it for 19 years. Home games. Love it. It's one of the joys of my life. I noticed when I got up and showered and then got in the car, I noticed I was sweating. Just, and I was like, well, I'm not normally nervous. I mean, I'm always, you know, a little nervous to share the word of the Lord. I want to make sure I'm doing right by the word. But I was sweating more than normal. I drive in, and for 19 years, I've been doing this chapel service, and I know that the first two rows of the parking spots at the Ferrell Center are where the coaches and the game managers park. And I know not to park in those spots. I always, 19 years, park in the third, third row. Always, 100% of the time. This time, I drive up, and I pull into the second row. And I pull in, and I went, these are the coaches' spots. I ought not to park here. I went to back out, and I thought, no, nah, that's okay. They'll get over it. <laughs> so I get out, and I start walking toward the tunnel. And I think, no, I, I really need to turn. I need to, to go move my car. And I turned around and started back, and then I went, nah, it'll be all right. So I went in, and I did chapel service. During chapel service, I noticed I was sweating a little more, and I noticed I was really not remembering what I was saying, and I was off script, 
but I was very evangelistic. And I remember saying, I remember, this is the one phrase I remember saying, none of us knows how, many, how long we're going to be here. I'm 67 years old, and I'm not promised tomorrow. Neither are you. So I finished, and I'm sweating. Now I'm short of breath. I was like, man, I really worked up a good sweat and preached really hard. I went and sat down, and I sat down and went, what did I just do? I had no idea, no recollection. I asked some of the coaches, as they were, I said, did I do okay? And they said, oh, Pastor, you were on fire. I was like, well, okay, great. I had, I had started a diet the week before, and the diet had limited me to 1,050 calories a day. I know. Okay. And I thought I was having an, a, a reaction to that. Okay. So I was like, okay, I just need to eat something. So they had some bacon and eggs there, and so I kind of scarfed down some bacon and eggs. And I was like, okay, I was going to go home and get Laurie, and we were going to come back to the game. And by the time I walked about down the stairs and started up the tunnel about 100 yards, literally I was just, <laughs> and then things started going hazy. And I went out loud, I'm, I'm walking all alone. I went, I wonder if this is what it feels like to die. And I said, Lord, just get me to my car. I just need to get in the car. I'll be all right if I can just sit down. Got to the car, put my bag in the back, got in the front seat, and realized I had my keys in my bag in the back seat. And I went to try to lift my arm to get out of the car to get into the back seat to get my keys, and I could not lift my arm. Now, there was no pain, no pain whatsoever. And I just laid my head back. I started praying. I said, oh, Lord, something's going on. You know, I, you know whatever. And I just started praying. And uh, pretty soon everything went white. And then there's a knock on my window, and it's Coach Tang. And Coach Tang says, Pastor, you okay? I was like, ah, oh, man, just give me my keys, and I'll drive home to my wife, Lori, and she'll take care of me. And uh, they said, Pastor, you're not, you're not going anywhere. And they called the trainer, and the trainer comes up. And I was like, man, just let me have my keys. I want to drive home. Look, I'm feeling great. Oh, look, I got all my court, you know, everything. I'm fine. And uh, they said some words to me that really kind of struck me. They said, Pastor, you're no longer in charge here. I hate those words. I like being in charge. And, and so they said, come on. And, and so I went down the tunnel and got and sat down. And when I sat down, I said, I can't take another step. Sat down. And guess what? Just so happens that at that very moment, the EMT people showed up for the game, came around the corner. They said, you got your first patient here. They hooked me up. I'm like, oh, man, all I'm seeing is dollar signs. I'm like, no, I, I don't need this. I just, my wife's coming to get me. She so can just take me home. And uh, they, did, they hooked me up and they said, okay, blood pressure is, uh, I mean, heart rate is 180. Blood pressure is 105 over 51. We need an ambulance. And I went, I am not going in an ambulance. And the dude looked at me and he said, you have two choices, sir. You can either go in the ambulance or you can die. Which do you prefer? Nobody has spoken to me like that. I said, are you serious? He goes, yes. About that time, the ambulance shows up, and he goes around to meet the ambulance. So I look at his partner, and I said, is he serious? He said, yeah. I said, okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, because I'm a 1 to 10 kind of a guy. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being fully alive and 10 being fully dead, where am I? He said, you're between a 9 and a 9 and a half. 15 minutes, you'll be dead. That was what I said. Wow. And I said, well, oh, okay, 
I guess I'll take the ambulance. Got on the ambulance. They said, we're going to give you something to, uh, and I said, what's that for? And they said, well, that's so when we shock your heart. And I mean, I'm seeing all these, you know, emergency TV, things, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, is that really necessary? And the guy looked at me and said, do you want to live? And I said, well, yeah. He goes, then yes, it's necessary. I was like, say, my niece. So about two minutes later, I said, hey, when are y'all going to give me that? Um, when are y'all going to shock my heart? And they said, oh, we did that a long time ago, bro. We, you're at the hospital now. And I was like, oh, can I get some of that stuff to go? That was really good stuff. <laughs> and anyway, long story short, they did a heart cath. My heart is completely 100% healthy. My arteries 100% non-blocked. There's two, two ways of your heart. You've got the plumbing and the electrical. My plumbing is completely clear. My heart electrical. There's, a, there's some problem with the bottom part of my heart. So, long story short, to put a defibrillator in. And as I lay in bed, and as I have really, really, really wrestled with this over the last uh, three weeks, and I'll, I'll close with this, um, I've said, Lord, what, what? You know, I felt fine. For 60 minutes, I, I wondered if I was going to die, and then I felt fine. I mean, what, what's the deal? What is the deal? And the Lord said, you don't like weakness, do you? And I went, oh, I love weakness in other people because that gives me job security as a pastor. <laughs> you know, I mean, you got weakness. I can cancel you. I can pray for you. You'll call me. I mean, I, as long as people have weaknesses, uh, pastors are secure. I mean, I got a long way to go with that. He said, yeah, how about in yourself? And I said, I hate weakness in myself. And I, I, night after night after night, and I'm talking about even when I've been home now, night after night as I have said, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to teach me? And I really want some other things to be able to talk about. And the Lord has said one thing. In my, in your weakness, I am made strong. I bear in my body right here a lump that every day says, big fella, you're weak. You are frail. You are weak. The details are in my hands. You see, had I, had I moved my car to park where I park 100% of the time, one time in 19 years I parked in that spot. That was Jerome Tang's parking spot. And when... He saw that it was my car. He decided to follow me out and move. He said, in fact, he said, I was not going to follow you out. I was just going to wait until right before the game and go move the car. But he said, something prompted me to follow you out. Had he not followed me out, according to the doctors, I fainted. I would have not have been revived. My heart could have survived. He said, 15 minutes, 20 minutes max, and then you'd have been dead. Nobody was coming by my car for the next hour and a half. One person, one parking spot. So the sermon I'm going to preach someday is, can a parking spot save your life? <laughs> but you see, the deal is, is that when you are walking in the Lord and you are seeking refuge in the Lord, the Lord directs your steps. Why did I park in that spot? I've never parked in that spot. In fact, yesterday when I drove up, I thought, I'm not parking in that spot again. <laughs> Let me get back on my spot, man. I'm telling you what. 
But you see, in my weakness, God is made strong. In your weakness, God is made strong. Turn to him, look to him, call out to him, and he is the one who will deliver. Well, I'm about halfway through, but I'm out of time. So I appreciate y'all for listening slowly and let me uh, deal with this psalm. Lord, I thank you for the fact that our times are in your hands. I thank you, Lord, that we can trust you at all times, that you are good and that you watch over us at all times. God, teach us to call out to you for your name's sake. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Be sure to pray every time you